People are scared. They don't know what to do. They feel out of control. All the stuff going around this coronavirus, locust plagues, economic and political chaos, turmoil, meltdown, wars, threats of wars all over the globe. It's a scary time for a lot of people. And there are some people, many people, wondering, is this a sign of the end of the world? Is the world going to end soon? I mean, there are serious, traumatic things happening. People are dying. Very many people are grieving, suffering globally. The pain and sorrow is real, and it's widespread. And it's not just global, it's here as well. If, you've, uh, if you have the digital bolt, you see that the uh, title for my sermon today is It's Not the End of the World. What we're seeing are signs that we live in a broken world, a fallen world, a world that will someday end, but it won't be necessarily soon. So how do we respond to all of this chaos that's around us now? As a church, as a Journey Community Church, we've been working through the Gospel of Mark for the last, uh, I don't know how many weeks, since the early fall. 20. 20 weeks. So we're continuing with our series through the Gospel of Mark, and we're in chapter 13 uh, today. So if you uh, please turn with, with me there, those of you who have Bibles. Uh, Mark chapter 13. I'm going to start by reading uh, chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, but I want to set the context up to this point. What's been going on? What's happened so far in the Gospel of Mark? Jesus has been warning his disciples that he will be arrested. He will be flogged, tortured. He will be crucified. And then he will rise again. He knows he's going to be arrested later this week, that week. He's been warning them right for, you know, for the last period of time. He's been warning them that, that, he, that they also will receive experience persecution simply because they are his followers. So he wants him to be ready, he wants to be prepared, alert, watchful, faithful in the midst of the hard times that they will begin to experience soon. So here in chapter 13, Jesus gives his disciples and then us, Mark's readers, insight and exhortation concerning how to live as Jesus' faithful followers in the midst of cruel, sometimes near, crushing times of turmoil and drama. So Mark chapter 13. I'm going to begin with verses 1 through 4. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? Jesus replied, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled. Let me stop here for a moment. From Mark 
chapter 11 on, Jesus has been in and out of the temple in Jerusalem. He has been watching carefully, observing what's happening in the temple. His conclusion is that what was meant to be a house of prayer for all nations has become corrupt. He calls it a den of thieves, a den of robbers. It has become hopelessly corrupt. And in his actions and in his teaching, things like overturning the tables of the money changers and driving out these money changers from the temple courts, Jesus has pronounced judgment on the temple and the religious system behind it. Here in Mark 13, Jesus and his disciples are walking out of the temple Jesus explains, uh, and, they just, and uh, one of the disciples says, wow, look at this building. And Jesus again pronounces judgment. He says, this is what's going to happen. It's going to be destroyed. Not one stone left on another. Now, the disciples are stunned when they hear Jesus say this, but they believe him. So they ask him a double question. When will this happen? And what will be the signs that it's about to happen? And it's this context, the context of the temple itself and the two questions that the disciples ask, that is the focal point of all of Mark chapter 13. So not to bury the lead, what I'm saying is this whole chapter is all about the temple. It's all about the temple. Now, maybe... Probably, when Jesus talks about the temple being destroyed, the disciples are thinking to, to them, they're thinking to themselves, this is the end of the world. Why? It's because for Jews of that day, the temple was everything. It was the focal point, the center of Jewish religious life. It was God's house, the place where God lived, where God made himself known to them. It was God's powerful visual message to the world. It was, the temple was saying that even though humankind has rebelled against God and fallen short of his holiness, of his, of his glory, there still is a place where people can be forgiven. It's the place where God pours out grace. So for them... For the Jews, it is absolutely the center of their life. And if the temple's gone, what does that mean for their life, their world? The destruction of the temple was, in fact, the end of the world as they knew it. But it wasn't the end of the world, period. Just in, in a smaller way, some of you may remember, some of you were around when 9-11 happened. You remember where you were. I remember I was in my office in a basement memorial church at Harvard University, uh, meeting with uh, Paul Ashby and Ken Boon Lee, who were planning to get married. And we heard this rustle outside, and we walked out of my office, and there were people from all over that building watching screens, seeing what was going on on the screen. People, you, you have vivid memories of 9-11. For, for those of us in the United States, it was a traumatic kind of thing that happened. It had 
long-standing and even continuing effects to some extent. It was the end of the world as we knew it, but the world continued and we have adjusted to the new realities. That's what the destruction of the temple would be for the Jews. Jesus tells his disciples that the temple is going to be completely destroyed, not one stone left upon another. And it's not just the temple he's talking about, not just the building, but the whole religious system that, that undergirded it. That end would be incredibly traumatic, chaotic, confusing, disorienting. So Jesus wants his disciples to be prepared. He knows that when all this happens, he won't be with them. He won't be with them physically. He won't be with them in person to lead them, to strengthen, to encourage and guide them. So he warns his disciples. And I'm going to pick up there. So keep that in mind as I read verses 5 to 13. Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. These are the beginnings of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Jesus wants disciples to be prepared for what's going to happen. He warns them. There will be false messiahs, he says. Don't be deceived. There will be wars and rumors of wars. Don't be alarmed. Such things must happen, but they're not the end. The end is still to come. There will be political turmoil. There will be earthquakes and famines. But these are only the beginnings of birth pains. There will be persecution. You will experience persecution. You will be arrested, flogged, put on trial. Be on your guard and use it as an opportunity to preach the gospel, to be witnesses, because the Holy Spirit will be there to help you when these things happen. You will not go into this alone. Such things must happen, Jesus says, but the end is still to come. These are simply the beginnings of birth pains. Now, each detail, listen to this, 
each detail of Jesus' words found its fulfillment in the four decades after Jesus' death, crucifixion, resurrection, in the four decades leading up to the destruction of the temple, which happened in the year A.D. 70. There were five major earthquakes that occurred. There was one in Crete in A.D. 46, Rome, A.D. 51, Phrygia, A.D. 53 and 60, and Camponia in A.D. 63. There were three great famines during the reign of Claudius in Judea in A.D. 44, in Greece, A.D. 50, and in Rome, A.D. 52. In A.D. 65, that was the worst year for famines and earthquakes in the history of Rome. A.D. 69 was known as the year of the four emperors. It began A.D. 69, the emperor with Nero on the throne, then he was deposed, and Otho became emperor, and then Vitellius, and finally Vespasian. All of them in, in one year. And with every turn of leadership, there was trauma, there was war, there were people being killed. It was extraordinarily chaotic and scary and disturbing. A time of political and economic confusion, upheaval, the likes of which Rome had never experienced. Now, the book of Acts records what happened to the disciples, the followers of Jesus during these decades. They were, in fact, arrested. They were persecuted. Many were killed. And beginning on the day of Pentecost and proceeding from there, the gospel was, in fact, preached to all known nations. So everything that Jesus talks about in Mark chapter 13 was fulfilled in the several decades that followed. He wasn't talking about the end of the world. He was talking about their world, their world. Now, I entitled this section that we just ended, Signs That Are Not Signs, Signs That Are Not Signs of the End. But there was one sign that he wanted them to really pay attention to. So I'm reading from Mark now, chapter 13, that continues from there. This is a sign that the end of the temple has now come. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus' message shifts, so continue reading with me. Chapter 13, verses 14 to 23. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee. Flee to the mountains. It's not stand firm now, it's flee. Let no one on the house stop, go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. 
If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. Be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. Jesus says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, this is a sign to flee. Now, what does that mean, abomination that causes desolation? Well, Jesus is borrowing language. It comes in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verse 27. It comes up again in chapter 11, 31, 31 and 12, chapter 12, verse 11. What it speaks of, it speaks of pagan armies invading Jerusalem, stopping the regular sacrifices in the temple and setting up instead a desolating abomination, quote unquote. Now this was first fulfilled in December 167 BC. That's when Antiochus IV, the Seleucid emperor, he conquered Israel, he entered into the city of Jerusalem, went into the temple and placed the statue of Zeus in the temple and then sacrificed the pig to it. He desolated, he committed sacrilege in the temple. This is the abomination that causes desolation, the original one. But it became a symbol of what other pagan armies would do in years to come. So when Jesus is using this phrase from the prophet Daniel, he's talking about the moment when Roman armies will enter Jerusalem, go into the temple, and commit sacrilege there. It's exactly what uh, Titus, Roman Emperor Titus did in 1870 when he, before he destroyed the temple, he committed sacrilege in it. What Jesus is telling his disciples here is that when you see signs of invading armies congregating and moving toward Jerusalem, this is, your, this is your sign not to just hang out there, but to flee, get out, get out. This will be the sign that it's time to get out and run. But Jesus is not saying that this is the end of the world. He's saying that this is the end of the temple. Now, think about this. He's telling them to flee Judea. If this was a sign of the end of the world, there'd be nowhere to flee to. Jesus is talking about a localized, Jerusalem, Judea, a localized trauma, a tragedy. It's not a global thing. It's something you can flee, so you should flee, Jesus is telling his disciples. Now, here's what happened. The early church paid heed to what Jesus said. They, when they saw the Roman armies gathering, they fled the city. 
Josephus talks about what happened. He says that there are 1 million, 100,000 or so Jews who were killed when Titus entered the city. 100,000 of them were enslaved. In addition, Josephus talks about all this, but not even one person is identified as a Christian. What in fact happens, the early church heard this, they fled the city, they went to the region of Perea, to a city called Pella, and they just waited there. And when the Roman armies left, they moved back into Jerusalem, and they helped to, 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 to rebuild the city. They helped to care for those who were left behind struggling. You remember, those of you who know the Gospels, that when Jesus was approaching the city of Jerusalem, he looked down on it and he began weeping, just weeping, because he knew what would happen in the city. And Luke records that they did not recognize that it was the time of God's coming to them. They would not heed Jesus' warning. They refused to do the things that would, that would bring peace and protection to them. And so they were left there they were left there and experienced the wrath of Rome. The folks who listened to Jesus were saved because they trusted in Jesus' words. I'm going to move on to verses 24 to 27 in Mark 13 now. Jesus tells them, be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. Then he says, but in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man. That's how Jesus referred to himself, the Son of Man, again taken from the book of Daniel. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. What is Jesus talking about here? What he's talking about is the fact that the temple, the destruction of the temple is a sign that what Jesus said about himself is actually true. It's a sign of God's vindication. The fall of the temple and the birth of the church was a sure sign of God's vindication of Jesus as the true Messiah. What happens after birth pains? There's a birth there's a birth, and what Jesus was telling them is these will be extraordinary, painful birth pains. But there is a birth coming. There is a birth coming. Jesus will be vindicated. The people of God will be gathered together. The church will be birthed, and the life of God flowing through them will enable them to be a blessing will enable us to be a blessing to the nations. It's all about what happens next. 
that Jesus wants them to be focused on. They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds of glory with great power and glory. Now, in Daniel 7 itself, Daniel 7 uses this language, and it's not about the return of the Son of Man from heaven. It's actually about the return of the Son of Man after suffering to heaven. It's about triumph and vindication. It's about simultaneous, simultaneous judgment falling on a system that has opposed God's call, God's gospel. And it's about Israel's representative sitting down as David's Lord does in Psalm 110.1 at God's right hand. From Jesus' point of view, in other words, it can turn the vindication of his entire message and mission. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus, God brings about this, this new birth, this vindication after Jesus' death and resurrection. When you read Peter's sermons in the book of Acts, you see him coming back to these passages, these, these apocalyptic passages, sun and moon falling from the sky, stars, all this stuff. That's prophetic apocalyptic language talking about changes talking about big traumatic events, changes happening on the earth, um, but it all centers around the vindication of Jesus the Messiah. And then following this, there are two parables that Jesus tells. So let me read through the end of this passage now. So it's still chapter 13, verses 28 to 37. Now learn this lesson. Learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its trees, as soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly I tell you, this, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task. Each with their assigned task. And tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch. Because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Jesus begins here with a parable about a fig tree and leaf. Fig tree and leaf signifies 
that summer is almost here. It's an illustration of how he wants his hearers, his disciples and his hearers now reading, how, how they're supposed to react. They need to watch for the crucial events that he's been telling them about, especially the arrival of the Roman armies taking over the holy city and the temple itself. He's told them previously in the book of Mark about uh, the si some signs of the end. He's told the parable of the wicked tenants in chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. Mark chapter 12, 1 through, there's a parable there. Go, you can go back and read that again. It's amplified here in chapter 13, but chapter 12, when he tells that parable in verse 9, he says, the vineyard, older, the vineyard owner will take the vineyard away and give it to others. Who are the others? As far as chapter 13 is concerned, the others are the foreign pagan armies, the Roman armies, trampling the holy places. When that happens, the end's not far away. And Jesus is quite clear that this will happen within a generation, within the generation of his disciples, his first century disciples. The generation that rejects his message as it was doing must be the generation upon whom the judgment will fall. This warning, it, this warning, it's backed up with one of Jesus' most solemn assurances. His words will stand, though all else may pass away. His words will stand. They're to be taken seriously because they will stand throughout all eternity. Jesus also says he doesn't know the precise day or the precise hour. It doesn't matter whether he knows the precise day or the precise hour. It doesn't matter whether the disciples know the precise day or the precise hour. What does he tell them to do? Just be ready. Be watchful. Be alert. Be ready. Whenever it happens, show yourself ready. So Mark 13 is not about the end of the world, but about the end of the temple and its system. But the judgment on the temple is a foreshadowing of the judgment that will fall on the entire world one day. Now, the commandment, the lesson from this is not to sit down and work out some kind of prophetic timetable. People have been trying to do this for generations, centuries even. They've been wrong every single time. No one will be able to figure out the day or the hour. That's not the point. The point isn't to figure out the timetable. It's just to be ready all the time. That's what Jesus is saying. Keep awake and keep watch. So what does that mean for us? What does it mean for us here, 20 centuries after the events recorded in Mark 13? The judgment fell on the temp temple is a foretaste. It's a foretaste, according to other passages in the New Testament, of the judgment that will fall on the entire world one day. There won't be signs. There won't be advanced warnings. Just the ongoing command to God's people in Christ to be faithful, 
not to compromise with the standards and fashions of the current age, whatever that might be, but to keep awake, watchful, witnessing. We've been given the message of salvation and we've been given the power of the Holy Spirit to live as Christ's people in this world today. What does that mean for us? It means that we do not have to be afraid and we do not have to be self-centered. We can be bold to bear witness and we can be free to love God and love others with all of the love that Christ has poured into us. We don't have to turn in. We can turn out in love and in grace and in truth and in hope. Now let me go back to the coronavirus for a moment. First, I want to say that the precautions that the Journey Church is taking are not in any way an overreaction. I think that in some small way, this is actually a, an application of Jesus' warning to his disciples to flee in Mark 13. When we know something's happening, we take the right precautions. We don't kind of say, I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to do my religious duty. Our religious duty is to follow Jesus, not to be heroes. We're not called to be heroes. We're called to be smart in the ways that God wants his people to be smart. So we do. You know, we take this virus seriously. Each of us must take it seriously, but we cannot be, should not be, do not need to be afraid. Because why? At the end of the day, we rest in God's hands. We rest in God's hands. He's still on his throne. He's still in charge. He's still with us. He still loves us. The second thing I want to say is take this as an opportunity. Wash your hands a lot. But when you wash your hands, don't just sing happy birthday twice. Pray. Use it as an opportunity to pray. It's a reminder to pray. So the 57 times a day when you wash your hands, pray each of those 57 times. Pray, Lord, restrain the spread of this virus. Heal those who are infected. Lord, provide for and uphold the vulnerable and the poor who have no one else to help them. Lord, reveal yourself during this time to all those who do not yet know you. Use this virus as a wake-up call to them because they need you. Shatter their illusions of control and self-sufficiency. Help them to see that they need you. Help them to believe that you're real, that you exist, that, you're, that you love them, that you're for them, and that you will hear them if they cry out to you. Pray that prayer. And pray, Lord, during this time, Help me to be more attentive to you than I have been. Help me to be attentive to you. We're in a period of a kind of a national slowdown. National slowdown. I opened the pages, the sports pages this morning. There's so little sports to report that the highlight was the, the, a bowling championship. Now, 
I think for the folks who bowl, that's a really big deal. But it is a small number. So congratulations to the Worcester Tech bowling team. It's a, it's a great thing. But you know that when bowling team is featured, something strange is going on, right? So let it, but let it be a wake-up to you, wake-up call to you. Use it as an opportunity to seek God. You can't do a lot of things you used to do with your time. Use it, don't fill that time you know, fretting or binge-watching Netflix. Use it as an opportunity to seek God, to pray, to journal, to think, to reflect, to read the scriptures, to ask God to show you what he wants you to see, to ask God to tell you what he wants you to hear. Don't waste this time. Use it. Use it to go deep with God. And then secondly, use it to reach out to other people appropriately. Maybe keep your social distancing, but there is a thing called a phone. There's a text. There's FaceTime. There's even paper so you can send notes and letters and cards. Use it to reach out to the people around you, to let them know you're thinking about them, praying for them, to ask them, how are you doing? Is there anything you need that I can help you with? Use it as an opportunity to extend connection. So you're not with them face to face, but you can still deepen connection and express love and grace to the people around you. You know, when 9-11 happened, for a period of time, there was an extraordinary explosion of love and courage and grace and generosity that flowed from people all over the U.S., and churches were filled, and people were seeing God. It was an extraordinary response, a beautiful response. 9-11 brought out the very best in us as a nation. Unfortunately, it didn't last. Coronavirus is another wake-up call for us. By the grace of God, may it bring out the best in us again, and may it bring out the best in us until Jesus returns again. Amen? It's not about knowing when Jesus will return. It's not about knowing what signs to look for. Trusting Jesus, obeying his words, loving him and others, that's what really matters. It's not about signs. It's about being God's sign to the world. Let's be God's sign to the world, that there is a God who loves them and a God who wants to save them, and a God who's preparing a place for them in his presence for all eternity if they would turn and hear his call. Let's be a sign of that to the world. Amen? Let me pray. Father, thank you that you love us, that you're here. Thank you that you love the world. You sent your son, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. May we take the opportunity that's in front of us, Lord. May you help us to turn to you, respond to your love, hear what you're saying, to recognize that God has come into our midst to save. I pray this in Jesus' name.